Hospitals nationwide are losing their resources to the most recent surge of COVID-19, running out of beds and increasing ER wait times. How does the greater Washington area compare a year and a half into the pandemic? We have all heard the scary stories coming out of emergency rooms. ER professionals are often the first point of contact people have when seeking medical treatment. They also can act as a canary in the coal mine when the limits of hospital infrastructure get tested. In Chicago, Illinois, doctors say a surge in respiratory illnesses is flooding ERs with children and leading to long wait times. Across Georgia, some hospitals are postponing surgeries, even non-elective ones, to accommodate their patients in COVID ICUs. We wanted to know how hospitals in our area are holding up. This week, we spoke to two specialists from MedStar Washington Hospital Center. Dr. Susan O'Mara is the chair of emergency medicine, and Dr. Glenn Wartman is the chief of infectious disease. They talked to us about what patients can expect, regardless of if they have COVID-19, the ER staff burnout and fatigue they're seeing, and how you can talk to your friends and family about their vaccination status. To start, I'd love to ask Dr. O'Mara, where does MedStar Washington Hospital Center currently stand amid this Delta surge as far as capacity, as far as staff being pushed their limits? At the beginning of this COVID experience, I'll call it, we really, really tested our limits as far as how many critical patients we could take care of at one time, how many critical patients we could take care of at Washington Hospital Center, and how many we could take care of in MedStar Health. Like, luckily, we have nine hospitals, so we had a lot of space for critical patients, and we needed to use a lot, if not all of it. Luckily, at the beginning of the pandemic and in the first several months of it, we really tested those limits. And so now we are back up to just about normal ED volumes, which for us are pretty high. So we're back up to close to normal volumes. A much smaller percentage of our patients have COVID, but luckily we had all the experience of stretching our limits in the beginning. So we know where our limits are. We're not anywhere near them right now. So that feels pretty much like normal operations except we have to have that constant vigilance. Don't miss the COVID case because now they're not few and far between. I won't go that far, but it's not every single patient coming in is likely COVID. Now we've got all the normal patients and don't miss that COVID patient because it's really critical not to miss that. To follow up on that, was there ever a point when MedStar was facing bed shortages? You know, we've heard stories in the national news. There are places that said we cannot take any more patients. Was that ever a concern here? The ER is really the entry point for all those sick, sick patients. And we did move patients within MedStar sometimes because of needing critical beds, needing the type of isolation beds that any COVID patients need. We had to move them around MedStar a little bit, but luckily we had the whole system. So we were really lucky in that sense. We never felt that we don't have a place for this patient. We can't care for them. We never got to that point. And is the reason that our area never really got to that point, is that because of mitigation efforts or is that just kind of luck of the draw? I don't want to sound like too much of a homer, but Washington, D.C. was truly, truly impressive at mask use. I mean, I don't know if you all felt it, but my feeling was that everybody was a team player. People wore their masks. You know, we have people come in intoxicated and need an ambulance ride to the hospital, but wearing a mask. It really gave me a good feeling about Washington, D.C. So my feeling is, yes, mitigation efforts affected it. But, Glenn, you may have a more academic answer. I agree completely. And, you know, we don't know for sure, but this Delta variant right now, it seems to have hopefully plateaued in our area. I mean, naturally, it seems to be plateauing a little bit, but especially in our area over the last two to three weeks, you know, why that is, we don't know for sure. Relatively, we have fair vaccine uptake compared to other areas of the country. As Dr. O'Mara pointed out, you walk around, people are wearing masks here. 
Social distancing is still going on, not as super as we used to do, but I think all those things come together to blunt the impact of Delta. Dr. Wartman, staying with you, as the chief of infectious disease at MedStar Washington Hospital Center, you've been seeing patients through the pandemic. What does your average day look like now? How do you treat coronavirus patients? To be honest, at this point, COVID has become like everything else we treat. Unfortunately, we honestly don't have anything that works very well for COVID. And I think that's an important message to get out. We have some steroids that we can give that have some efficacy. And then we have some cutting edge things that we can try that have some marginal benefit. We don't have anything near as good as an antibiotic. So if you're sick enough to get into the hospital, your course is not guaranteed that you're going to get out of the hospital. We don't have very good therapies. So actually, I don't take care of most of these patients now. They come in the hospital, they get cared for by our hospitalists and the general teams, because most of it is supportive care, giving oxygen, doing nursing care, and then hope they get better. If you could, could you expand a little bit about just what a serious COVID case looks like? What's the timeline? How long are patients in the bed and how long are they with you all? There's a lot of variability. Some patients are completely asymptomatic. They'll test positive, you know, in the outpatient setting, never need to be hospitalized. If you're sick enough to get into the hospital, we have patients that'll turn around in three or four days and go home. But then we have patients around day 10, day 14, after they started their illness, that get so sick, they're on a ventilator. They can be in the hospital for a month. And after that, they go to a rehab center. They might not be going home for two to three months and then never be back to normal. Their lungs are permanently damaged. Yeah. And obviously you touched on this. We are seeing more and more how having coronavirus affects people long term, likely for the rest of their lives. Correct me if I'm wrong. But have you had people coming in from complications of so-called long COVID? It happens. The biggest concern is fibrosis of the lungs. People will get a severe pneumonia and get basically scarring in their lungs. And, you know, the disease has only been out for 18 months or so. So how long it'll take, whether it's permanent or not, we'll just have to follow these patients over time. You just alluded to the length at which the world, you all have been treating COVID patients. So either of you can chip in and take this question, but how are doctors and medical staff doing 18 months into this? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And at the beginning, I have to say, there were the first many months, maybe even year of COVID. People who love emergency medicine, this is what we're built for, right? It was something new. It was such a professional challenge. How do you run an emergency department with this kind of acuity and this kind of novelty, like where we're having to think hard about every single patient? Nothing was an automatic blink decision. Everything we're thinking about, what's the latest guidance? Not the guidance that came out last night. What's the guidance that came out this morning? So that level of intellectual engagement, professional engagement from the nurses and the docs and the physician assistants... And you can sustain that for a pretty long period of time because we're all in it for this level of professional interest. And then we all felt like we got a breather there, right? Right before Delta really surged, there was this collective team sigh of relief, like, oh, we can go on vacation. So a lot of people took advantage of their PTO and finally went on a vacation after maybe 14 or 16 months of no vacation. And I mean, no, no weekend off, nothing like that. And now that Delta is coming back, it is more of a challenge. You really have to sort of, like I mentioned, vigilance early. You've got to really stay vigilant. Don't be lulled and think, oh, it's just a little COVID case. They might have COVID, but they're all right. You can't look at it that way. So there is sort of a long-term level of strain, I would say, that's going on. And frustration with people not being vaccinated, I think, is definitely out there. We all want everyone to be vaccinated. 
it's frustrating to have cases come in and, and sad, honestly, to have cases coming in because the person didn't get around to deciding to be vaccinated. Yeah, because that level of illness is largely preventable at this point with a vaccination. Dr. O'Mara, I know you lecture and talk about the mental health of medical staff. Beyond manageable and arguably understandable levels of frustration, how burnt out are the staff members you interact with? Is there turnover? Are people leaving? I have to say the ER staff are taking their PTO, but that's something we're encouraging everybody to do. We're luxuriating and being able to say, yes, we can finally do something for your wellness. We can give you your time off that you've earned and deserved. We haven't had a lot of attrition on the doctor side, like on the PA side, people are sticking with it, but there is a fatigue. Luckily, ER is definitely a team sport. So we talk about the fatigue a lot. We bring wellness into like every staff meeting, every conversation, morning huddle. We talk about how are we supporting each other and what can we do today to support each other today? We've just tried to make it super verbalized and really bring it to the surface because yeah, we acknowledge it's like a fatigue. Like people are just a little tired. And so you have to do those constant daily oomph to stay vigilant and stay energized. Dr. Warman, as an infectious disease doctor, as this pandemic turns into an endemic, and that's what a lot of the experts we've been talking to on the show have been alluding to, that this is really going to become endemic. How has your perspective shifted? Yeah, I think with SARS back in 2003 or so, and it came and it went away. And I think people were just hoping this would be the same thing. We'd have it and it would just sort of magically go away. But I have to admit, I, I was not as optimistic. I think we got lucky that one time. So I agree with you. I think it's endemic. I think it's going to be with us. I think we can control it. The development of vaccines in a year was unbelievable. So I think if you're vaccinated, it's going to be more of an annoyance. You may get sick every year or two, just like you get sick with a bad flu. But if you're vaccinated, you're highly unlikely to be hospitalized or die. It's just something we're going to have to adapt and live with. Have you seen breakthrough cases coming into the hospital or have vaccinated people's cases been manageable with at home treatment? Our experience here mirrors the national experience where there are breakthrough cases that get hospitalized. Predominantly, those are people that don't respond well to the vaccine. So the ones I've personally taken care of here are someone who had received an organ transplant. And we know those people don't respond well to the vaccine. So he had been vaccinated, but didn't respond and then got severe COVID. Another late stage HIV patient. So there are people that have depressed immune systems that don't respond as well to the vaccination. There's now guidance that those patients should get a third dose of the vaccine. So definitely go out and get the third dose if you've not been vaccinated, if you're in that risk group. And um, Dr. O'Mara, have you worked with medical staff to talk about how to deal with distrust that you may receive from patients? How does someone who is a doctor or a nurse who has studied these things try and transfer that information in the best way they can? Yeah, we talk about that a lot because the emergency department is really an opportunity to do some public health type interventions. So education about the vaccine, because we see such a large number of patients and from a wide cross section of the city, right? So one thing we did was we got the ability to, while someone's at the emergency department for any other complaint, if they're not too sick, to offer patients the vaccine in the emergency department. And we use that opportunity. We even brought in some educators to go around and offer the vaccine to the patients, not the ER docs, but like a nurse practitioner or a nurse who would have a little bit of time to talk to patients. And if needed, if the patient wanted to hear from a doctor, you have doctors conveniently located right at the nurse's station. So yeah, we talk about how to approach the question. The number one way is with respect. That's a really important way to open the conversation and to continue it on. And just 
offer facts. And yes, I mean, one thing we go back and forth about is how strongly do you offer your opinion? And we concluded that, well, as a group, as a hospital, as a system, there's no question our opinion is that people should be vaccinated. So we're pretty strong in that advice. And then just try to respect the person's process. They haven't decided yet. Okay. They haven't decided yet. That's all right. I'm here to assist you in your decision. And I have the facts. And furthermore, I've got a lot of experience and can tell you, if need be, some scary stories that I think are pretty compelling. So yeah, we talk a lot about that, like what's the right approach and what's the thoughtful, respectful approach to take to that. For our listeners who don't have a medical background, what arguments have you seen be the most persuasive when it comes to getting unsure people on board with the vaccine, especially when talking to friends and family? I think there's some data that people talking to people they trust. So if they have a friend that got the vaccine and the friend did fine, then they're more likely to go get the vaccine. That personal connection is huge. I think physicians and and healthcare people are hopefully a trusted source. And so if they hear it from their family doctor or an ED doc or someone that they encounter, it's very helpful to hear it. And I agree with Dr. O'Mara completely. And I think it's a lot like quitting smoking. A lot of people don't quit the first time and then they keep trying and trying. And then the fourth or fifth time they can quit. They may not be ready now for the vaccine, but we just have to keep offering it. I also think that there have been a couple of essential misunderstandings. I often think when you're trying to persuade somebody, facts don't necessarily make the difference because it's really about, like Glenn's saying, talk to a family member, someone that they trust, they see with their own eyes that someone got the vaccine and did okay with it. But in this particular case, there have been a couple of points of misunderstanding, one of them being, if I have medical problems, if I have lung problems in my history, emphysema, chronic bronchitis, then I shouldn't get the vaccine. When the message is supposed to be, if you have those problems, you're more likely to do badly with COVID, so please get the vaccine. But they're confusing getting COVID and getting the vaccine. Helping patients with that particular twist of logic has been helpful. So where are we now in the D.C. area? I think starting 18 months ago, there was heavy shock and fear and heavy social distancing. We then got the vaccine. There was this ease. The Delta variant continued to surge. And now we're seeing this leveling off. Where should we rest in our stance in relation to COVID-19? Nobody can predict. That's something that, that it's taught us is nobody can predict. We didn't really predict the development of variants when this first came out. And that was a curveball. We're still learning about the virus. It's still very young. Again, it's only a year and a half old. What we'd like to see, what everyone's praying for, is that it'll be similar to the 1918 influenza, the Spanish flu experience, where it eventually settled in as one of the background flu viruses. And that hopefully will happen here, either through natural immunity, vaccination, maybe just evolution of the virus, it becomes one of the normal viruses in the background. And Dr. Wartman, in the past few episodes, we've talked a lot about the population that hasn't had the chance to get vaccinated, and that's the younger children. And we've heard a lot of recent news about vaccines for those five and 11-year-olds. What's your take? What's your thought on all that? I mean, I think it's great. It needs to be vetted by the FDA and then the CDC and come out as a formal recommendation. My kids are older, but if they were younger, they'd be first in line to get the vaccine. Absolutely. My staff, the docs and nurses and staff members that I work with who have small children, one of the biggest stresses right now is their children being in school. I get a text every couple of days from one of my docs saying, another class at my daughter's school is in quarantine. You know, it's coming. She knows it's coming. And what's going to happen is she's going to have to be home with her child for 10 days and then she can't work. So everyone's chomping at the bit to get the vaccine for their smaller children. And I think it's going to be a huge life improvement for 
many age groups, not just the kids. What can we do to support medical workers right now? Are there any actions beyond what we've already discussed that we could take to support our medical infrastructure? Push for vaccines. You know, as Dr. Romero mentioned, it's the, my buddy got it, I'm gonna get it. That kind of message that we need to get out there. I think the DC area is above 70% vaccinated. Ideally, it should be 100%. That's the only way out is vaccination. The Association of American Medical Colleges, the American Hospital Association, and the American Nursing Association have all said that they are experiencing staff shortages, calling the situation a crisis. In the middle of September, Children's National Hospital neared full capacity amid a surge in respiratory illnesses, including COVID-19. A spokeswoman at Children's National told WTOP the hospital has, quote, the staff necessary to safely care for patients, end quote. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Laura Spitalniak. And me, Luke Garrett. Our cover art was created by cartoonist Audrey Garrett, and our music is courtesy of Lockspeed. Join us next Monday as the world recovers.